Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. If you haven't heard the news, Overlander Network just got even better. Overlander Network is the place to find all of X-Overland's legacy and most current premium content, along with our popular masterclass series teaching you how to build your Overland vehicle from stock. With Overlander Network, you can now watch on your favorite devices through the new Overlander Network app. You can download all your favorite content to take with you on the trail and enjoy ad-free, family-friendly entertainment. You can watch video versions of this podcast, enjoy monthly live streams, and of course, be the first to watch the Nordic series before anyone else. Right now, you can test drive Overlander Network for free for three full days. Take the wheel at overlandernetwork.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the X Overland podcast. We got a good one for you today. We're going to be talking a whole lot about elevating summertime camp cooking and camp cooking in general, because we have Carissa and Lindbergh here of Gone Durton on the podcast, and welcome you two. We are excited to have you with us today. Thanks for having us. We're Thanks excited. for having us. Yeah, We're excited to be here. Yeah, Chris and Lindbergh, um, they know a lot about cooking, overlanding, and this is why we have actually started working with these two in our content creator series. Um, it's going to be a show called Gone Cooking. And they are going to be creating content around overlanding, camping, camp cooking with a culinary theme, right? You too. Oh yeah, Talk yeah. A little more about I mean, that. So it's it's trying it's a show trying to break down the walls between home cooking and outdoor cooking, and how basically you, whatever you cook at home, you could cook outdoors, and that's just base the basically it. And then because there's this huge, which we're going to get into in the, today, right? There's this huge wall that people always hit whenever they travel and they want to cook, right? They were like. We can't cook certain things, or we don't want to cook certain things. And this show is supposed to be there to break down that wall. Yeah, yeah that makes perfect sense. And that's a big part of what this whole podcast is about. Uh, I have my co-host on today, too. Leah is checking in from Flagstaff. Hi, Leah. Hi there, guys. Thanks for being here. And uh, we're, you know, we're all about helping people, like, shift their consciousness um, from, you know, I can't cook that when I'm camping to whoa, not only can I cook that, but here's some other ideas that, that can really change. I think like like most people's perspective of camp cooking, especially if they're new to this and, and mm. you know, camp cooking was growing up with, with hot dogs, um, falling off a grill into the fire or whatever it was, and um, into something like uh, that it could be that, that you all bring to the table. So I think it might be fun. Uh, what do you guys think of like, just trying to reflect upon our first camp cooking experiences to uh, you know, share some stories in that and uh, <laughs> to relate to our listeners a little bit where they might be coming from. So I think I, I, I was I was thinking about this and I was like, what is our first camp cooking meal? And I, it was a long time ago when we were camping out of a car uh, and we were ground tenting and everything was just kind of basic like, you know, basic camping and stuff like that. But I remember our first meal, because we already cook at home, I was like, I want to eat well-ish. But well-ish. the thing... Um, I was. <laughs> but also the thing is that uh, 
at the time when we were just brand new campers, there is this, this is aura about camping, right? Uh, where camping is like campfire, camping is tents, and camping is um, marshmallows and s'mores, right? And so with that, it came to the food stuff, right? And and food stuff at the time, and we were fall camping, and at the time I was like, okay, I want something warm when we're out uh, camping, and it has to be camp food, right? It has to be, no questions, and camp food for us on that first time was, was um, I made chili out of a Dutch oven and cornbread. Yeah, that's over a fire. Over a fire, yeah. And when yeah. we were allowed to have fires, right. So yeah, this was a while ago. So that, that yeah. sounds pretty tasty. So uh, Carissa, was it a win? Like, were you like, hang, this is delicious. It's always a win. It's never <laughs> a win. <laughs> so so Lindbergh, like, do you have some background then in, 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 as a chef or culinary expertise that you, like, brought to that immediate first camp meal? No, I have I have no formal training at all. Um, everything was was learned. Everything I, I learned a lot of new techniques through YouTube actually, um, and it's not through watching recipe videos. It's through watching um, people go through food tours and like street food tours in different countries, like in Vietnam, in in uh, Thailand, in India, and then seeing those street false street stall street stall vendors like how they prepare things because they have to prepare everything so fast and so fresh that like that's where a lot of technique that I get what it came from and it didn't come from recipes yeah What's your mom and it's oh yeah and then my mom was a big part of it um I always tell people that I learned to cook from my mom at counter eye height because I was always <laughs> on I, I watched her and she never taught me anything specifically um she never like hey you should learn how to make this uh or anything like that so um I just did everything by memory. And as I grew up and as I moved out on my own, I tried to recreate those dishes and I always failed until I had a better understanding of food and I realized I didn't have to have the same ingredients or the same recipe as her to get the same result. And so I like this weird thing comes up. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, so being that you are not the cook of the group here, what is your first memorable meal that Lindbergh made for you? Or do you help prepare while you were camping? Can you think of one? I feel like the one that comes to mind right off the bat. So I grew up camping and it was definitely like hot dogs, hamburgers, chili, yeah. like just chips. I grew up in yeah. South Texas. We rolled up mm -hmm. in a trailer and just like whatever my parents had on hand. Um, and then camping with Lindbergh, level up times a thousand he's like busting out <laughs> korean barbecue with all these meats all this banchan and we just have it all laid out at this beautiful campsite in the desert and it was it was a wonderful wonderful meal. Mm. just like such a treat to take that like la korean barbecue because uh -huh. that's where it originated yeah. from right nah, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah okay right, yeah. sorry anyway um yeah it was just such a treat to have that in camp it's insane Mind blown. Um, I was like, okay, this guy's a keeper. it, <laughs> <laughs> y'all. I love it. So it sounds like uh, Carissa's first camp meals were more like what I would be thinking of. Like like when you were a kid, like, you know, the hot dogs, hamburgers, over the fire type of thing. Definitely. Oh, and s'mores. I mean, I would oh. eat like a dozen s'mores at least, and then I'd be sick to my stomach, but I'd love every moment. Okay, so... so <laughs> yeah, I, I, we're talking about food, and Carissa did teach me one thing that will forever stick with me about s'mores. S'mores, so you take the, the marshmallow, the big ones, and then you take your little chocolate piece and you stuff it inside 
so smart. The marshmallow. I was like, this is amazing. So I love that idea. I'm doing yeah. that. So, it yeah, so you get like the jumbo marshmallows. Yes. So it's big enough to put like a piece of good Yes. Chocolate. I learned that from her. It's like soft chocolate. It's not as much of a crunch. It's yes. nice. That's awesome. Oh, man. That is super anyway. smart. I remember the my parents got us the roller roasters. Do you uh, ever seen those? Like yeah. the long oh, prongs and then you twist it. spin it with your yeah. thumb. Yeah. And the the perfect toast on your marshmallow was always like <laughs> the achievable those. thing. What what was your first m- meal, like camp meal memory, Leah? Uh, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. Um I I have two that I can think of. The first one, I was young and we were tent camping in like an actual campground um as a as a kid. And my cousin and I got the, we were in charge of making pancakes and they were just biscuit pancakes. And like the fact that we had like an outdoor little kitchen, that was great. But I remember serving them to our parents and my mom, it might've been my mom or my dad, like took a bite and it was just gooey in the middle. Like it was brown on the outside and just straight batter on the inside. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but, um, and then, you know, fast forward into, um, you know, the last 10 years of my life when I started actually like long I would still call them bigger road trips I'm not sure I could actually call them overlanding trips but like these longer road trips and we did a lot of um like foil packs which was new to me like I would prepare them at home and make the and freeze them and then we, they'd be ready to go we just toss them on the fire and eat yeah. like sausage peppers stuff like that and but that again kind of falls into the category like that's camp food yes like what, can, what can I prepare at home to make cooking outside super easy like just right. throw it on the fire right um, right so we did a lot of that yeah, and we're like so. Uh, I think this podcast, like a big part of this, is is what you know your show is about, uh, Limburg and Carissa. It's it's taking this mi- it's mind shift right from like camp cooking, and and what that what most people envision when they think of camp cooking, and cooking inside the walls of your house and your kitchen, and like getting outside of that boundary and mm-hmm. thinking like what what amazing things can I bring to my camp the cooking right. wise mm-hmm. what culinary right. things can I do I think it's awesome like Lindbergh was talking about watching all these street vendors like street cooks and uh-huh. uh, all the street food and like oh yeah that I could do that in camp right yeah mm-hmm. it's like this this awesome mind shift right right so so I'm not going to uh I'm not going to sneak out of telling my own first camp meal story. I think it's important. Like, if people, like wait a minute. Wait, yeah, wait. Where was Jimmy's? <laughs> what what was the trigger for me was you you're talking about s'mores, Chris? Mm-hmm. Because um in my life my first camp I, it, it, camp meal was cooked by somebody else. I was a, I'm an East Coast boy and um my family didn't camp at all. Um it was all hotels and that sort of thing and so I was going to Montana State, made some friends. They camped and fished all the time. They're like, we're taking you camping. I was like, really? Cool. 22 years old. We head out, out of, you know, this remote place out by a river. And these guys, you know, they got fire and grills. and But it was real primitive. And they were like, it's Tahita night. It's Tahita night. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm envisioning what you guys would probably think of when you think of fajitas. Right. Well, whatever they put on this, like, makeshift skillet was not at all a fajita. It was just what they decided was a fajita. <laughs> And it was kind of like some weird burrito thing, but because, and this is something maybe to speak to for, for what we're talking about, because I was camping, it could have been a piece of shoe leather. And I was so stoked to be out there that I was just like, this is the best meal I've ever had. Yep. 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 And so, yeah, you know, that it's like the, what camping can bring to Uh your cooking and and what cooking brings to camping, I think can just be magic out there. Yeah. Yeah. 
time and place is such an important thing when it comes to experiencing a meal or specific food. Um, it just brings a whole element of a certain feeling and it's nos- it's nostalgic. Right. right. Yeah. Because then if you ever have it again and you eat it, it takes you back to that place where you first had it. Right. And I feel like that's so beautiful about food is it, it can transport you to memories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, thinking about like a lot of people after they've been doing this a while have traditions even like we have steak night or we're going to do fajita night or whatever it is or, you know, <laughs> pancakes in the morning. But it's like I'm hoping, too, that you guys will be able to help some people even with those like traditional ideas with just a few thoughts like, well, if you tweak it a little like this or you mm-hmm. add these ingredients and, you know, so um, that's that's going to be some exciting stuff to get into that hopefully people can out to their own camp cooking yeah um and so where where's your i guess like the next shift here would be like philosophy that that leads to what you guys do when you're camp cooking like do you have kind of a working philosophy around how you approach it it's location dependent for one thing right so it depends where you get groceries for so that kind of dictates your meals or that that dictates our meals right um we spend upwards of like two one to two months on the road at times and depending on where we are, it depends on what our meals are, right? Mm-hmm. So when we leave LA, of course, we have like a tons of Asian ingredients and tons of ethnic ingredients and things like that. Um, and as we get further and further out, these things are harder to get. And so mm-hmm. what, when, and, and knowing that we're going to be further out, I do keep like certain ingredients that are non-perishable that could make certain things, right? Um, for example, I keep a uh, Korean um, chili flakes, and then mm-hmm. with like, and then they're non-perishable. But I can make I can make quick uh, um, kimchi out of them. I could do uh, a bulgogi with it. I could do a soup with it. Like in that one ingredient, I can make ten different dishes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's kind of just thinking, where does my food, and how could I make it last the longest in terms of like the certain ingredient, right? right. And um, and I guess the philosophy is simplifying what you love. And that's the easiest thing, right? And so, like, I make a Dutch oven pho, a Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup, um, and I make it out of a Dutch oven, and then I do it with chicken broth, which it's I still consider it beef because a whole oxtail goes in, and that, and then you let that simmer for about two two and a half hours or so, and it, so it gives a beefy quality. But then the the chicken broth is just one; it's cheaper than beef broth most of the okay. time, and two, it brings a sweetness to the broth that like you don't have to add sugar to it. Right. Huh. So like something like that is like it's a a, 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 a homemade pho is going to take 24 hours if you want it really good. Wow. And this is like no idea. You can get camp and you have you're eating within three hours. And so yeah. this is huge difference. Yeah. And I would say that being outside is going to make it like way better. But it's it's oh, pretty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I, I would say we've mentioned that Devin's now multiple times in this conversation. Mm-hmm. So I see that as being like a tool that is in your kitchen at all times like what's what's another couple of tools that you have that like I, you don't travel without so the dutch oven now one camp about the dutch oven okay is that we don't travel with it much anymore because one we're we're living out of our truck these days sure um and and we just don't have the space and two wherever we do travel there's lots of fire bands whenever whenever we do travel so because of those two things we don't travel with our dutch oven anymore other than like we do like quick weekender trips where we go to actual campsites where they have those round metal rings yeah. and you're allowed fires, then we would sure. do it. Uh, right. But um, we just have a two burner gas stove, a propane stove, uh, and then some pots to go with that. 
Um, so that's always, and then just three types of knives, right? You need a regular big knife, like a chef's knife, a butter knife, and not butter knife, a bread knife, and then a paring knife. And those three things will get you further than anything you, you want. You want to keep things as simple as possible. And you never, ever, like, I always tell people, never buy or bring uh, cooking equipment that is one use only. Like that um, like apple slicer, that round apple no. slicer thingy. <laughs> never, ever, like, for waste of space. I feel like that is, like, a, a rule of thumb for all things adventure outdoors. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Yeah, that's a core philosophy at X Overland yeah. with building the trucks. It's like right. everything has to have more than one use. If right, possible, right, you know, mm -hmm. totally, yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, and then I'm trying to think what else. Well, your pots and pans, you use them as a Dutch oven too, but they're just way lighter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Material. So I, I I use this stacking. We use a stacking set. It's uh it's a carbon steel set, um, okay. and it's a frying pan and a bigger pot. And it's because it's carbon steel, it needs to be seasoned, and because it needs to be seasoned. Uh, it can use it in a fire. And so it can be used as a Dutch oven as well. Interesting. So there's this weird, there's a strange wave of better cooking equipment for camping coming. It's so early right now, but it's like, it's it's like right there. We're about to be flooded with really good um, equipment, I think. That's exciting to hear. Cause like yeah. when I think of Dutch ovens, I think of the big, heavy cast yeah. iron, you know, hanging off the bottom of the chuck wagon sized yeah. Dutch oven. <laughs> and uh, I love cooking with those. Like I like the food it produces, but man, the weight and the bulk is right. a lot. There. So I was like, I bet these guys have some other approach to a Dutch <laughs> oven that would be really useful to know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, yeah. Um, we really like uh, our pots and pans. Uh, yeah, and 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 I, I wish we. I, I love the nostalgia factor of a regular cast iron Dutch oven. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. me too. The bulk, the bulk. Yeah, created. yeah. So I wonder. Um, you mentioned fires like several times, like mm -hmm. that being an issue, and like back when we could make fires. So it sounds to me like you guys have encountered a lot of fire bans in the places you've been. Right. Uh, basically, uh, we we we've traveled mostly west of the Mississippi. We haven't been too much east yet. Um, and because of Western Mississippi, including Canada, sometimes, uh, there, during the spring to late summer to early fall, there's huge fire bands, um, just because they're just, they're just tinder everywhere. Um, and yeah, and we just, we heed those precautions. We always make sure we're traveling places that, uh, are allowed fires or, or not allowed fires. And we just make sure that we know what we're doing. And certain, uh, some, certain summers, I remember two summers ago. We couldn't go to certain public land areas with a propane stove and use That's a propane right. stove, That's right? Yeah. So at that point, we if we had an induction cooktop, we could have been we could have cooked food. Probably like so, that's like a great segue into like new, like camping equipment. Like induction cooking is gonna come. It's going to come. Like that's my explain induction right cooking. What it, what is that like in a camping device? What would that look like? So uh, right now um. On the market, there's like single burner induction cooktops, and induction cooktop is cooking with magnets, and so you could turn this stove on, right, and you could literally touch the top of the stove, and it will not get hot because you don't have any magnets in your hand, right? But if you if you the minute you put on a pot that's a magnetic, the the heat will transfer through, and and it just it's super fast for one, and there's no loss in heat. So and then the only thing is that it takes a lot of power right yes so that is about the drawback but i think because of technology and because uh, because of battery technology and all these other things it's coming like really really quick um and i think for like the average meal you're cooking you're just fine it's just if you're doing like you know you're making pho for three hours induction's gonna definitely pull like a power right. but 
Yeah. Like the typical meals we make, I feel like it would be just fine, depending on power, power wise. That, but for us, it, it would be okay. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's one less thing to fill up. We wouldn't have to be filling up propane and all that, which mm-hmm. is a plus. Yeah, and and we do plan. Uh, eventually, we do plan international travel, and with the propane fill, depending on the country, it depends on which fitting of propane you need to bring with you, right? right? Yeah. To fill yeah. up your propane. It's a, yeah, it's a it's a real problem. Yeah. Solar is becoming a thing, and the batteries are becoming better, and then so induction is going to become better. It's going to make travel easier. And then uh, with these fire bands, uh, you could cook in certain places that don't allow propane stoves. So it's like it's a it's a big plus. Uh, we haven't switched to it yet. We don't have a big power system yet, but um, it's I do know it's coming. Yeah, uh, you, I, you, you got me like, like really excited to learn more about induction cooking and what those devices look like. And now like it's going to be in my radar. I'm going to be paying attention to that. Because like for Lee and I both, you know, we're both in the West. Lee is in Flagstaff. I'm up here in Montana and the fires are, are a huge problem. Mm-hmm. I'm actually like really glad we're getting into that in this episode a little bit to help keep people safe and to keep the forest safe. Like a few pro tips mm-hmm. about what you guys do, even without induction gear. Like if you're just using like conventional propane stoves, like are there a few things you always make sure of um, or that you do to your cooking area to try to reduce fire risk? Um, I, I would say most modern uh, propane cook, cooking stoves are very safe. Uh, there's very little flare-ups. The only thing I would not do if I was in those situations, like like full fire ban, be careful with your propane stove situations, is I would not fry. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing I would not do because the minute like oil gets splashy and then you got you could have flare-ups or you just have a whole thing to burn out, right? Because you, we've all, at this point, we've all seen the picture, the videos of the turkeys being deep fried and going up in flames, right? So that's what will happen if you do it wrong. And okay. imagine that in a forest, in a dry forest. So um, I we avoid frying, and that's kind of the main thing. Everything else is, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, if we're on the ground and it's allowed, like, you just make sure everything, all yep. the brush is clear mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. wherever you're cooking. Yeah, just be aware. Fire permit, like, make sure you're all oh, yeah. good with that, too. Yeah, depending on where you are, you do need a fire permit to to even use your propane stove. Uh, so it just depends on where you are. And the great thing is you can just be on, go online, get the fire permit, which is free. Uh, and it's easy. And just have it on your phone. And if, if like a ranger comes by, just say it's on my phone. That's really helpful. I'll definitely yeah. put some links in show notes about all those things. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like just the surface, like whatever, if you have a propane grill or something yeah. like what, whatever it's setting on, mm-hmm. just being mindful of how quickly that stuff can catch. A question that I was thinking about was like, and a problem that I have is uh, food storage um, right. or or quantity even. Like mm-hmm. I, at home, I actually make it up, like I, I'm intentionally making more than we can eat so that I can freeze it and keep it for later. And I actually have a hard time dialing that back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I have leftovers, what do I do with those? And like, am I eating my dinner for breakfast again the next morning? Like, how, how do you guys feel about that kind of question? So that's a really good question because I struggle with that as well. Mm-hmm. But I've what I've done been doing le- lately when we go to camp is whenever we do cook for say the two of us or even we cook I cook for a group of like um, like eight people up to eight people right yeah. um, I would eyeball what I'm making less than what I would do at home right right exactly um, and then because of that like just just make sure like oh I'm using this much rice at home then I will use this much rice at camp which is much less maybe like a third less or even a fourth less sometimes because we are eating less outside. Yeah. What about food food storage? Like, do you guys have? Um, I don't know why that's such a thing on the top of my head at this moment, but like, yeah. I'm thinking about um, like Tupperwares and glass containers and a fridge and um, 
your cooler. I'm like, so uh, what did you lost the glass containers and Tupperware take up a ton of space. I know, right? Yeah, but we don't. We we try not to do that. Okay. Um, what we find better, which is uglier, like aesthetically uglier, but it's better, is we use Ziploc bags and we use it multiple times, right? So, so uh, we have the silicone kind. And we have the silicone kind too. So there, there's two kinds, right? Yeah, like, it's like a heavier duty Ziploc. Yeah, yeah, design. Like freezer bags. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. Have you guys tried the stasher bags? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I think use stasher bags a lot. I think they are the best ones I've ever found. They just close really easily. Mm-hmm. They're sturdy, walk yeah. easy. Yes. Yes. So my only gripe with stasher bags or like silicone bags in general is if anything oily goes in, then the oil will transfer into the silicone because that's just how the nature of the silicone is. And it's really difficult to get out. So you have to be really like aware of what goes into it. Um, And then also if you have something that is oily and it stores in there for say more than a couple of days, the oil will start to seep all the way through eventually. It won't seep like, like, like turn into a puddle, but it will make it sticky on the outside because of that. So that's like some like we we've realized that that we do, and then so we are very intentional what we put in those sasha bags. Okay. So yeah. on top of that, I I so I use we use the gallon ziplocs and then the quart ziplocs, and then in the fridge we use well, what's called considered deli containers, like deli deli, deli containers. containers, right? Yes. And then yes. Uh, one they're they're leak proof for the most part, and two they stack up really really well whenever we travel, and so we have traveled like maybe six different ones, like maybe six of the big ones and like three or four of the smaller ones and, and then medium-sized ones, we carry a couple of those as well. And they all stack up into like just a small thing. And that's yeah. that's genius. Yeah. That's genius. And as far as like key pieces of equipment, something I'm really interested to hear about with both of you is refrigeration and mm-hmm. and how and how that has evolved for for you over the years, right? So like you had the um you started out with just a normal car of some kind, I think, yeah. and then the Montero mm-hmm. and uh then the Troopy now. Yeah. And I'm guessing that with your evolution came changes in approaches to refrigeration. So like what was what did that look like and what do you have now to keep things stored, cold, frozen, etc.? Um do you remember uh, our our Lexus setup? I feel like honestly, we brought a lot of dry goods at the first build. Dry oh. goods. I mean, we did a lot of PB and Js because it's easy. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we tried. Might have had a small cooler. At we, the time. we had a small cooler, and then yeah, yeah. When we got the Montero, we got like a bigger cooler. Just put ice in it. Um, and, then we'd bring everything, right? Yeah. We got lettuce. We can have produce, all that. We'd grab the lettuce out. It's soaking wet. Through it, let's just make a salad anyway. <laughs> yeah, let me have like kind of soggy sandwiches with like wet cucumber on it. But then we started traveling like from the regular cooler. We went to the Yeti. Yeah, and yeah. That was a that was a huge game changer when we started traveling more. Mm-hmm. Yep. Our 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 things would stay cold for seven days ish. Yeah, but towards the tail end, you know, you had some wet lettuce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's not. Why did you get into this? Because, like, you know, I have a background a little bit in in whitewater rafting and and r- river camps, and you know, the the Yeti made a huge difference because you could prep those things, kind of cool them down ahead of time, and then fill the bottom with freeze packs mm-hmm. and if you were my if you'd freeze your meats first and put your meats in there all frozen and then strategize how you open your cooler and when mm-hmm. um you you could prolong right your food you could do a pretty good job like a week long river trip whatever right right but like you're saying carissa then there comes a limit even for the yeti now the freeze packs are melted 
Yeah. Um, now you got to recharge it somehow, right? So I think there's this um, this difference. So we talk a lot about at X Overland between say weekend camping trips mm-hmm. and and really going on the road and overlanding for extended periods of time. Right. Um, that you start to see the difference, say, between a conventional cooler and a powered refrigeration source. And so, like, it sounds like that's where you guys are at now, right? Like, you yes. have, yeah. yeah. And what do you what do you use then now that you've jumped up to powered refrigeration? What does that look like? Uh, so we we use a uh, fifty five liter Dometic CFX three, I think, um, and that has been the perfect size for us from the Montero onward. We 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 went from uh, a fifty five liter in the Montero to a fifty five liter in the Droopy. Even though we knew that we were going to travel longer in the Droopy, we found out the fifty five liter is the perfect balance between size and storage uh, storage space. Um, there's a set for us. Yeah. Uh, the 75s are a little bit too big. Um, and we don't need to freeze meat all that often. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. Yeah. Especially for those long trips. It makes such a difference. Like you mentioned like the brilliance of the ice packs with the Yeti and that's great for a week, but the moment you start, you know, traveling longer then that powered cooler really goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like uh, that's what we've heard. Like um, Clay's talked about, even the challenge when you get into less developed countries, if you're not running powered refrigeration, just finding ice. Yeah. Like how, like, like uh, especially hygienic ice. You know, is is like we take that for granted here, yep. and I guess it's a lot harder to find in your world traveling. So, yeah, being self sufficient and being able to power for refrigeration really makes a difference. And it, it, the the size was helpful to me. So for you two as a couple. Uh-huh. You find 55 liters is adequate. Are you, is there a frozen component of that or no? Is it no, no we, we don't freeze anything. Um, there. So the, the great thing about uh, the new uh, Dometic coolers is that they have an ice maker built in. Hmm. Um, and we, so we rarely- an ice maker? Ice. An actual- God, ice hit the ground or cocktail. Yeah, so, so it's like this, you, you just put this tray right above the compressor and the compressor uh, makes the ice. Huh. And it's like this one inch like thick, section in the cooler but we don't use it as an ice maker we use ice cream storage okay very important very important i like that yeah so because it's so thin you could put in like four or three or four like ice cream sandwiches or like popsicles like individuals and just put them right there and then they're fine yeah wow genius yeah yeah i love that that. (laughs) i love that Um, I was just going to go back to the cooler conversation just for a minute because I used to work for a cooler company um, and we would have the question all the time about like, well, what size cooler should we get? And the same to your to your fridge question, you know, the 55 is great for two people. 75 is it, it doesn't sound like that much more, but it is way more space. Um, yeah. It takes up more space in your vehicle. It takes up, um, especially in, in the cooler world takes up that much more energy and ice to just to keep it cold. Right. Um. So like you really have to you know, be wise about how you're packing, what you're packing. Like if you're a big drinker and you need your 75 right. quart cooler full of all beer, right. going to exactly. have an issue with your food, <laughs> right? Like you got to compromise those types of things. Um, but we used to always talk about um, pre-chilling your cooler. And so like, I know you guys have a fridge, but for other people and other listeners, yeah, yeah. Um, it, in fact, it got to the point actually where we would get complaints because people wouldn't pre-chill their coolers. And this is a Rotomotor cooler company that I worked for, not Yeti, but a different one. And um, if you don't pre-chill your cooler, it actually works against you. And so then you're like, I bought this really expensive roto-molded cooler, and now all of a sudden things are actually 
like it's only lasting two days right and it, they're put they're putting in you know uh, a six pack off the shelf or right. um room temperature food um and they're and then like hotel ice and it's not working out for them we did when we did have a cooler we pre-cooled every single time before a trip and that helped a ton everything <laughs> out of the fridge just made sure everything was yeah. cool before putting it in yeah yeah I just want to throw that out there too for weekenders or people you know who don't have massive amounts of solar to resupply their batteries to plug into shore power, which is basically like plug into your house is the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and get even if you have a powered fridge, get it cooled down before you leave. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and you, is is helpful for saving power and and just even the foods. Like get it all preloaded before you head out. Um, the foods get cold and all that's done on shore power. That's just another way to save a little power if if you're limited and going out for a few days. Um, what temperature do you keep that fridge at? What is uh, the ideal temperature? It, it took a couple of years to dial in. I bet but... I, I can't wait to hear this because I'm just <laughs> now that I have one of those, I'm like, what temperature? So I I, I we set it to the 36 degrees Fahrenheit. 36, okay, right, and that we found that is the perfect balance between good temperature drinks and not frozen veggies. Huh. Right. So drinks at the bottom, always at the bottom. So the uh, because that's like cold always sinks, right? Cold uh, is heavier. Cold air is heavier, so it's always at the bottom. And yeah. at the top, you put your leafy vegetables, and then they, so they will not freeze. But the one cab of thirty six is if you put your leafy vegetables at the bottom, they will freeze. Well, there you go. There's your aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you attack your fridge. That's so helpful. Yeah. Right? And and like a lot of overlandy things that we've all talked about before. Like I'm immediately applying this to my home refrigerator, which I know yeah. there's a master strategy for, but everybody just throws it in. Just with throw it in. Yeah. yeah. And so there's vegetables here and drinks there. And it's like, no, 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 there is a rhyme and reason to this. Everybody, yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Yep, yeah, there is. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah no, no uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say in the cooler industry, we would talk about um, like if you uh, okay the refrigerator thing, you go to the refrigerator at midnight because you need a snack and you stand there for five minutes yeah, thinking yeah. like some magical snack is going to appear. And really nothing new is coming. Yep. Um, so in the cooler world, we always talked about like packing in order of like, if you know that your first night at camp is going to be kimchi night, I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever you're making, mm-hmm. like you pack that on the top and then your second night on the bottom. That way you're reaching in one time and it's quick and the, clo- the, the less time that you have that cooler open, the less cold air you lose. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So now in there. And that that like ties us back around. I heard you mention, um, you know, all your leafy greens and vegetables and that sort of thing, Limburg, and not not freezing, right? Uh-huh. And or if we go all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about like what most people think about with camp food, mm-hmm. like Carissa, what you grew up with, you were sharing what I had when I went on my first camp, and it sounds like Leah the same, yeah. and and you know that kind of stuff, that kind of cooking, like give it full credit, like it can be great to have a burger in camp or a steak or whatever. But that's also the difference between we're going out for one night on the weekend and we're going out for two months. Right. Um, I, I know, I, I think a lot of people might get sick if they ate that kind of conventional camp food every single night. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I think like the mindset shift from that to we're going to be extended camping and traveling and overlanding and we want to be healthy. Like we want good mm-hmm. food that nourishes us, that, that keeps us healthy, that we feel good eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's what you two really bring to the culinary space of, mm-hmm. of camping and overlanding right. and cooking. Yeah. Um, and so I want to get back like into some of that, like Lindbergh, 
the roots of your meals, like mm -hmm. we talked about philosophy earlier, yeah. mm -hmm. like, like the whole getting into things like uh, military history and history in general and how you bring that to your cooking. Yeah. And then that type of cooking is actually perfect for what we're doing when we're right. out overlanding right. and camping, right? So could you talk a little bit about how that background and how history inspires what you oh. cook and then how that food is like super <laughs> healthy and good to eat and nourishing and all those things? Yeah. So um, some, uh, every so often, like sometimes at expos, I do like uh, cooking demos. And a lot of times those cooking demos, uh, I do, I demo what is considered uh, occupation food, like military occupation food, right? And military occupation food is basically stems from uh, down the line, sometime down the years, uh, a military occupied a country, and their that country that occupied the host country, their food has been influenced, right? Or mm -hmm. or the the host country's food has been influenced by that, right? So that comes from a, a very personal part with me because Vietnamese modern Vietnamese cuisine. Almost the whole gamut of what we eat in v Vietnamese cooking, I'm Vietnamese, uh, is 100% military occupation food, like over the years, right? So we had, before Vietnam was a country in 48, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's 48. Before we were a country in 48, the, the French, we were colonized by the French. And then after that, we were, uh, uh, there was a little bit of Russians and then there was the Americans, right? And so a lot of things that, that Vietnamese people eat oh. are, yeah. Um, that well, it's inspired by, but influenced by these occupations. So, like Vietnamese pho is traditionally Vietnamese, but the modern way of making the pho broth, it comes from the French cooking techniques, huh. right? And then like yeah. bun mis or like the sandwiches that comes from the French, right? And then um, uh, there's this like savory crepe that's made with like turmeric powder and coconut milk that's very traditionally Vietnamese that comes from the French techniques of crepe making right there's all these other things like my cuisine purpose personally is very very military occupation like focus like this is why like it's a huge thing for me right um it's it's, it's interesting to think about uh and so yeah there's there's now there's american influences in vietnamese cooking like there's cheese everywhere and all these other I, things but that, that that that's like my like quote-unquote modern vietnamese cooking um yeah well man mind blown like like i think a lot of people when they 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 think of vietnamese history and in say the, you know the war of vietnam mm -hmm. they they a lot of people i don't think realize like the french influence and the russian influence and like how all that predated the american influence right. so like when you're talking right. about occupation cooking in, in vietnam uh -huh. you're talking about you know three different countries right and the influence mm -hmm. of three different countries mm -hmm. yeah throughout that whole process right. which which is like I, that's really awesome like all the different kinds of food that would come from that if we're looking at like the silver lining Right. From all this, right, mm -hmm. and which is what we're doing here. We're just yeah. focusing on on the food that showed up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's amazing. All the different possibilities. Yeah, and and all of that, and then we like to circle back to the food thing, and then modern thing is like the reason why I look at it is because it comes from a place of of need, right? Right. So um, there's these two dishes that I make at camp fairly often. Number one is it's called Korean budajigae. It's called Korean army stew, right? And uh, that comes from after the Korean War, whenever the Americans occupied uh, the southern peninsula of Korea. And all of the native Koreans, all of their like food went to the Korean army, the southern Korean army. So they didn't have a lot of proteins. They didn't have a lot of like really good quality meats or anything like that. 
And so what they did is they went to the American bases like, hey, if we give you, say, some kimchi, would you give us some proteins? And at the time, the American bases had hot dogs and spam, right? <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> and so, and then cheap, right? So those are the three very American things, right? So yeah. the local Koreans took those three things and then they, they have, um, they, they have, like, Koreans have this stew. It's called kimchi jjigae. And then or jjigae is, 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 uh, is a stew, right? It's the word for a stew or a soup or something like that. And uh, so they would take those ingredients and put it into their kimchi jjigae and it would become this thing that is now considered a uh, Korean army stew. And we make this almost all the time at camp because it's so easy to make and so delicious. Oh, um, man. And it's got to be hearty and filling. It's super hearty and filling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one pot. Like the dishes are very minimal. We can feed easily. Like if we have a group of four to six people, we can just all throw it together yeah. and, and go ham on it. You put ramen noodles in it. Like I wouldn't say it's healthy at all. It's like, very salty, but it is delicious. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you dive into some of the key ingredients for that? So so like I said, uh, spam, hot dog, yeah, cheese. Can we really? I'm sorry, I thought we were listing off interesting ingredients. But we're talking; these all go in the same pot. These all go in the same <laughs> pot, right? Right. And then so okay. the, the things that make it Korean at that point is okay. is the kimchi, uh, the chili powder, the green chili powder, which we always travel with, um, and then the choice of veggies. Like it, it, it's it's really up to you. Like you could put in cabbage, you could put in a melody yeah. of um of uh of mushrooms. It just depends on on where we're traveling, yeah. and then the where, and then we just put that in. So like lots of veggies, tons of garlic, like absolutely, like you want to ward the vampire away garlic, yes. right? <laughs> right. So uh, you're traveling with a lot of fresh. Like when you get a chance to buy fresh garlic, you're stocking up. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. The key ingredient. Yeah. I could camp with you guys anytime. I love garlic. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's good to hear that that's something that you're always packing. And then can I can I talk about the the, uh, the other um. Uh, military occupation food please and i just want uh listeners to know i'm I'm going to put a lot of this in our show notes like Uh everything from like key things that you guys always have in your galley and your pantry when you're traveling ingredients sauces things like that and then some recipes perhaps for some of the things you're describing Mm -hmm. um so if people are like oh man wait wait, what's in that it's like we'll we'll get that in the show notes right i'll send that oh absolutely and you're making me like i'm excited i just want to try this at home first Oh yeah, you right. totally can take it out. It's you know? a good idea. Yeah, we have a recipe. We have a recipe. I'll, I'll send that Perfect. to you. All right, I appreciate that. But the uh, the second one uh, that we do, and it's it's, it's popular uh, um, at these cooking demos uh, expos, is uh, Okinawan taco rice, and um, it comes from Okinawa. And you can still go to Okinawa and you can uh, Japan and uh, still eat this. It's very very popular because it's near the military bases, right? Okay. And after World War II ended, basically, it's the same story as the uh, the Korean Army stew, basically, um, in the sense that it's the only caveat in the in the story is that it is a entrepreneurial endeavor of the locals, right? So after the war, Okinawa was flooded with uh, U.S. Uh, military, right? And the U.S. military, at the time, like you're talking about 1945, there's no U.S. military person that has a palate for Japanese food, right? So then, then so uh, these these uh, Japanese are like, okay, we need to somehow feed these um, these military people and make money off of them because we're 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 like a little destitute, you know. After the war, we need to make some money. Yeah, sure. And so they realize that there's this weird concept that they don't know about either, that a lot of these people come from San Diego, California, Camp Pendleton, and they love Mexican food. 
Japanese people don't know what the heck Mexican food is. Why? I just it's love like point. this this mixing of cultures <laughs> and ethnicities yeah. going on with something right? like this nationalities. So, it's really cool. And so they they kind of like figure it out like what is Mexican food or what is the essence of Mexican food, and they make this thing. It's called Okinawa taco rice, and it's rice as a base, right? And then they, they have a ground meat texture, and then most of the time it's ground pork because. Uh, just anywhere outside the United States, pork is pork is king. Uh, so it's ground pork, and then it has the usual like taco spices of like cumin and chili powder and cayenne and all the other stuff, but with the addition of ginger, garlic, and soy sauce. Right, mm. and then then you, okay. you top that with pico de gallo, American cheese, lettuce, and then taco sauce. Wow, it sounds, sounds so good. So good. <laughs> Like, I'm thinking about lunch already. Like, yeah, me too. I was like, wait, why? What am I going to go eat? <laughs> Leah's about to flip a table. Hi. That's it. It became this giant thing in Okinawa. So if you go to Okinawa today, very close to the base, there's going to be Okinawa taco rice places everywhere. I just love how all this is like, you know, because is going into camp cooking. Right, and, right. You know, vehicle-based yeah. adventure and overlanding and stuff like and just like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, just helping people see, uh, like culinary itself. Like if you get turned on to culinary, the culinary world, mm -hmm. right? You're looking at food history. You're looking at ingredients. You're looking at these cool recipes, the the joy of cooking, all these things. And it's like you can bring that to your camp cooking, right? All of these cool things we're talking about, and that that I hope you know really just. Uh, inspires people to to go to the next level with with what they're cooking around the campfire, you know. Well, just in camp. I would say the conversation already has just made it seem more attainable. Like I would have been afraid of doing that outside of my own kitchen, but now mm -hmm. you're right. Like, what are we afraid of? Right, why, right. Why it, it shouldn't? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. Like, it, may, it, it might create like. So the thing, the other philosophy of like expanding your camp cooking is you have to be okay with dishes. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, I want to know right? how do you guys oh. handle this? Yeah, I had a question about that earlier when you were talking about your first the chili in um your first camp cooking experience and the chili and the cornbread. And here's something that I really don't like. Uh -huh. I hate being served like a warm bowl of chili on a cold camp night in uh -huh. a paper bowl, and then like in six seconds it's cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that bothers me so much. <laughs> like eat it fast. <laughs> so I have a hack with that, right? And I, I like, thought you might age it hack. I can't wait to hear this because yeah, I feel like Leah does too. It's nothing worse. Than <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm so, all ears here. <laughs> so it's not popular yet. In I don't know why this is not popular yet in the outdoor circles, but it should be. But if you go to an Asian, like specifically a Korean store, if you have access to a Korean store and you go to the the cooking utensils aisle and the cooking pot section, Koreans, for who knows how long, right, they have double-walled stainless steel bowls. And they're like $5 a piece. That is exactly what popped into my mind. Like when you were talking <laughs> about that, Leah, I'm like, wait, 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 like a, you know what's you know, like, could you get a double walled bowl? The yeah. only double walled bowl that I can actually envision in my head right now is the Yeti dog bowl. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, um, uh, uh, the human version of that. Yeah. So the human version. Of that. So they have different sizes. You have small, medium, and large. But if you have access, yeah, like I said, if you have access, especially in Flagstaff, you're pretty close to. Uh, Phoenix. Phoenix. If you Absolutely. if there's a cream store in Phoenix, if there's an HMR oh. there, you're good to go. Oh, gee. Well, this is. I'm glad we're going down this path because <laughs> I I am currently in the process of trying to rethink my 
kitchen in in my four wheel camper, like just trying to like how I do things and um, get away from disposable, you know, trash right. generate, even right. if it's compostable stuff, which I've mm-hmm. done for a while. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I want I want hardware and I want to wash it and reuse it and, you know, get rid of uh, reduce waste, all the right. things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering what you stock in your kitchen that way for like plates, utensils, bowls, and then let's get into the dishwashing because that's the other three. How do you do that? How do you manage to gray water? All those kinds of things. Um, cause I find it challenging. Um, so we're, we're uh, in the troopy. So let's go start with the gray water. So in the troopy, okay. um, uh, we, ha- we do have, we don't have a gray water tank. Like it goes straight to the ground, but here's the one cabot. We are very sensitive to where uh, gray water empties out to. So certain environments are okay with gray water emptying that when we're in public land and other environments like the desert is not as like super, super sensitive to anything like that. Right. So in that, in those cases, we do have something that covers and we collects it. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, or bury it. Or bury it. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, if we have gray water that has, like say bits of ramen in it or bits of food in it, right? Collect it, dig a six inch hole or deeper and then throw it in there and then cover it. Or a trash can. Or a trash can, yeah. yeah. Swipe it all up and throw it mm-hmm. in the trash. And uh, just for people who might be listening who are new enough to this to not know what gray water is. So like just real quick, there's potable drinking water, your water supply that you're cooking and drinking with. Um, wastewater that isn't related to human waste is generally referred to in RVs and camping as gray water. Um, whereas like, you know, an RV would have a black tank, say, which would be human waste generated water and liquids. So we're talking about gray water that would come from washing your hands, doing dishes, things like that. Yep. And how to manage yep. it. And then, okay. and then plates and stuff. Oh yeah. So we have just like a simple, just what's this is. It's not ceramic. Oh, that's uh, the enamel plates. Yeah, we have two enamel plates, and then what do we stack on top of that? We have the the double wall of Korean bowls. Double wall Korean bowl bowls, and then like yeah, also two just enamel plates too for like cereal or whatever. We have it pretty simple though. I think that's yeah. all of our plates. That's all of our plates. Okay, what do you use for detergents, and what does your process of dishwashing look like? Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use one. We use uh, plant based uh, soaps that are biodegradable. Okay, and again, we are sensitive to where we're using it because even if it's plant based and even if it's biodegradable, it could be damaging on the environment that you are emptying it into. Totally. Right. Yeah. Yep. So uh, you have to be aware of that, and you can find that at Target, mm-hmm. REI, mm-hmm. wherever um, for those soaps. And then so we bring spray bottles, like you just get them at Home Depot or whatever, just empty spray bottles, and we put soap into it, and then we dilute it with water. We do. I, I think I do a twenty-five. 75 water mixture mm-hmm. and then um instead of running our, our sink or instead of running anything else we just spray it directly onto our plates and dirty plates and stuff like that and we just wipe it yeah see and then, and then there's a pro my, tip there's that a pro is tip genius. there's been a handful of pro tips in this episode so far i and love so it. we do the same thing with hand soap as well so we have two oh. we have a dish one and a hand soap both the same ratios like okay. 25 75 i absolutely love that because i'm so thinking about like my bottle of camp suds <laughs> or dock bonders and having to yeah. open it up and use the concentrate and you end up pouring yeah. out too much and all that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It helps the soap last longer. It's almost like a like a foaming soap dispenser in a way, but instead it's just a spray bottle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so smart. 
like your proof. Yeah, the genius. So you guys, like, let's say, um, you know, it's something you cooked in or it's a plate you ate off of. Do you, like, into the trash, like, scrape off what, and probably eat as much as you possibly can off mm -hmm. of it so you don't have a bunch of leftovers or any kind of, like, residual, but is it, like, your approach to, to scrape off as much as you can and then spray with the soapy water and then rinse? Yep. Yeah, usually we take, like, a paper towel just to get, like, most of the excess that will just kind of clog up a sponge and then spray it off, get the sponge, and just start rinsing it. Sometimes <laughs> I fill the sink up with some water so I can just keep reusing the yep. water instead yep. of it constantly draining out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just let it dry on a towel. Yeah. Or I can dry it. It just depends on the situation. This is reminding me, like, we Sam and I used to always talk about, um, like, the difference between, like, like, camping clean. Like, it was camping clean. It's fine. Yeah. Like, it's really not that bad. But, and that's fine if you're going for three or four days. And you're like, it's just, I'm just going to use it again tomorrow. It's no big deal. So, like, when you're living in your vehicle and this is going on for, like, this is life. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want it to be camping clean. Right. I want it to be really clean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's definitely times where our plates last us, you know, a, a day or two depends on <laughs> yeah. on what we're making, right? If it's yeah. not too messy, if it's not like a yeah. curry, then sure. we're going to wipe it off and use it for dinner or the next yeah. morning. Right. <laughs> but And also on top of all that stuff, I, I wanted to bring up if, if you're cooking rice and you're cooking in rice in a nonstick pot and you, you finish the rice and you want to clean it. Uh, the best thing to do is just fill the whole damn thing up with, with water, let it sit, and then it'll just come right off the walls. Do you yeah. guys uh, ever use like a little drop of bleach for, or do you just put your stuff in the sun or any, like as far as like final sanitation? No, just no. I mean, we use bleach in our water system every now and then whenever we're cleaning out the tank. So, I mean, that's, that's but yeah, bleach it. is gone by the time we we fill up water. But yeah, it's right. just clean everything out. But yeah, we yeah. don't need bleach for we, anything. We haven't gotten sick yet. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm always prepping, like I'm doing all this wilderness medicine stuff. And oh my gosh, you hear those doctors talk about all this. And it's like your idea of like the camp clean, Leah. Yeah. It's like after a few of those podcasts, I'm just Talking. like, <laughs> I know. I know. Like, yeah. Might be something we need to incorporate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's great. Just to, just to help people with process. Um, because uh, again, like to the point, of going out for a weekend, you know, leave Friday, come back Sunday, and you can just kind of pile everything up and roll with it and deal with it on Monday and throughout the work week. But when you're continuing to stay out, that's when these skills really start to matter. Right, 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 right. Definitely, definitely. We have a sink in the the Land Cruiser, the Troopy, but in the Montero, we had one of those buckets where they're collapsible yes. and it had like a little drain thing at the bottom that you could close or open. Um, those are great if you're weekend camping, long-term camping, those collapsible like wa dishwashing bowls right, are great. Right. As we we're, we're drawn here to close to an hour of a chat and we like to keep our podcasts around an hour. Um, but before we have to say farewell to you guys for today, I'd like to know like, um, you know, kind of where you are now with your cooking and if you have any aspirations, like things you're working toward or you know, a new level you want to bring to your, your camp cooking and culinary and in the field, uh, skills you want to learn, anything like that that you're trying to grow in? Um, For me personally, uh, because I wasn't taught, like, specifically by anybody or any, I'm not uh, formally trained, I want to be taught by grandmothers and mothers more. Uh, of all aspects, cool. right? Because I think there's a lot to be learned from them. Not, say, specific dishes, but 
techniques, right? That's kind of what this whole thing is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like for instance, uh, uh, I I learned I cooked. Okay, so here, yeah, I cooked a meatloaf for Carissa's family not too long ago, and her grandmother had it, and she said, "This is okay. It's not as good as mine, right?" Which is right, (laughs) right? And so then she's like, "I will give you my recipe." Right. And then you could try it. Right. And I, 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 I got a recipe and I had it and I was like, it's really good, but I think certain things need to be a little bit better because it, her recipe is very, very old school, 1950s stuck in meatloaf, like traditional meatloaf. Right. So then what I did, I, both, I, boy, I did my that. recipe and in her recipe, which I now in my head, I call, uh, I call grandmother's, uh, to a uh, recipe and, um, and, and then I cooked it for her again, like a couple of Thanksgivings later. And she's like, this is the best we love at all. You did it. Oh, you did wow. it. Yeah. It's so cool. And she loved it. Yeah. And the only thing I learned was to use tomato soup into the meatloaf. And like, that's the one thing that really elevated the whole thing. There you go. The, the, and that, the, that was it. That's all like I, so because I wasn't properly taught how to make meatloaf, I didn't grow up eating meatloaf because I'm being Vietnamese. Just like, that's not a thing for us. Right. 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 Um, and so, yeah. And then that was like, that was it. That's, I love So that. Yeah. I, I want to learn from grandmothers and mothers more. Um, and then going forward, it's not, I, I'm just kind of just doing our thing and learning to eat more types of food and then yeah. learning how to cook those types of food. Um, I am interested in learning more nomadic food. Uh, so for instance, um, a very, very, uh, I keep, I keep talking about this, but a very, travel friendly uh piece of bread is is um ethiopian injera bread i'm not sure if you guys ever heard of this i have no injera bread is uh is made with a special type of ethiopian flour and because they don't because it's hot and because they are originally nomadic um they could not like sit and wait for their bread to rise right um and so what they did is they have they make into this like crepe almost but they let this this uh, dough ferment, and it, so it has a sourness to it. And so it's it's like, think of it like a crepe that's a little sour and it's airy because of all the bubbles from the um, from the fermentation, right? And I always talk about how good that is for travel because you could just keep feeding it every day with more flour, and then you just make more bread every day without baking because it's just pan pan panning that's yeah. genius that's genius. so like it's so like you, there's a lot we could learn from old nomadic like culture right it's like yeah yeah that it culture. just fits perfectly with yeah, what right? we do um, yeah that's what i love like, about in like Korean <clears throat> culture and any any cultures that were like nomadic we could learn a ton from yeah so i i hear you guys saying that's a goal of yours like to keep studying those cultures and pulling what you can from them for overland style cooking yeah yeah, it's like it's like why should we try to learn something when things have already been learned before us? Right. Yeah, it just takes like some diving in the history, and, right. and that's a super fun part of the whole experience. Um, the other thing that I I thought was really cool when you're talking about learning from mothers and grandmothers and uh, kind of these family recipes, going going to your mother in law's house, right, and it's like okay, here's the family meatloaf, is back to that concept of your show Gone Cooking that's going to be on our creator series yeah. of like getting taking those dishes and moving them outside the walls of the house and in the camp. And you're right. making like grandma's meatloaf in camp and giving it a little pizzazz with, with your own influences. Right. Like that's 
that's a whole new way of thinking about camp cooking for me. Cause like we have a lot of old family recipes that come down from my mother's right. side right. Right. and it just hasn't even crossed my mind to like, go do those in camp. Yeah. The, like, those recipes like, are just so simple too. Yeah. Some of them right. aren't even that complicated. No, not at all. Why am I not thinking along those yeah. lines? Totally. Right? So, and then, and then before we close, I have some ingredients I want to share. Please. Can yeah. About it? Oh, hundred percent. And so I, 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 I brought three things, three specific ingredients that I always 100% travel with and are almost in every single meal that I okay. make. Um, if you're on screen and on the video, this is right here. This is fish sauce. And don't be afraid of that. The best way to think about fish sauce is that it's jarred, uh, um, what was it, anchovies. If you are, if you love red sauce, you love anchovies no matter what. And if you love Caesar salad, you love anchovies. Even if you don't think you like anchovies, if you've had a really good Caesar salad, there will even most likely be anchovies in it. And so I take this fish sauce and I put it in my red sauce, like pre-made red sauce. I throw it in there and just like a dash, like a teaspoon, right? Yeah. And then I also like whenever I'm where I camp and we want a Caesar salad, I would put it into my Caesar salad dressing that I make, right? So it, it's very versatile in the sense that it just makes anything taste good. And so for, for example, the other thing, is if we are lazy and we just get like a pre-made chicken noodle soup at, you know, at Ralph's or at HEB or whatever, right? And then we taste it and it just doesn't taste that great, right? You doctor on a little bit of fish sauce and it goes, it elevates it a ton. Yeah, you start to taste the herbs. It like elevates yep. all the ingredients within the dish. It's kind of wild. Yes. Yeah. So like it could be like it could be tomato soup. It could be chicken noodle soup. It could be whatever you want. Like just if it's if, if you're if you're going like it needs something. Throw in a dash of fish sauce and then it'll, it'll, it'll change it. I love that. Two things like I've got a new camp goal, Leah, and that is a Caesar salad, the real thing with anchovies or like mm -hmm. Caesar salad in camp. Never done that. It's usually just like no, the box of lettuce. Yeah. It's in that bag and yeah. some, you know, janky dressing. And it's like, no, wait, a Caesar salad in camp sounds so amazing. And that's like the whole idea of like what we were talking about earlier about place. Right. Like how, how, where you are, all of a sudden it's not just a Caesar salad. It's a Caesar salad in camp. In a real one, not real. Right, 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 yeah. right. And it goes a long <laughs> way. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh my God. It's yeah. amazing. So the fish sauce, which is also like that whole idea of when you are somewhere where you can get these amazing ingredients, mm -hmm. like, you know, a city or somewhere where you can f source these, mm -hmm. then you get them, you put them in your galley and you have them. So when you're in more remote areas, and you're having to work with what you have to work with, like like um, the occupation cooking that you described, where it's right. like you had to get creative, right? Right. right. Um, you have these things to work with. Oh, so, luckily though, fish sauce is very easy to get these days. Really? Yeah. Like incredibly okay. easy. Like we've been in small town, like let's say we've been in Jackson Hole, which is not considered small anymore, right? Right. Um, and then like Bend is not considered small anymore, but it was. Right, these were smaller, and like Missoula was considered small at the time. But like back even then, you were able to get fish sauce in the ethnic aisles in those places, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we are finding it more and more the more remote we're going as well. So it is becoming easier. Um, and then like like for instance, kimchi is becoming easier to get. Okay, you don't have to be in a big city to get kimchi anymore, which is great. Like any mother's uh kind of has it, and then if you're closer to Whole Foods, that uh, they all have it now too, which is great. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's great. You have okay. to, you have to try to like, you have to be in a big city to get fish sauce because fish sauce is a thing now. Like, okay. 100%. Oh, yeah. We didn't even know it was a thing. 
Yeah, Leo, or I, what? I'm just, I should have been making a list of all the mind-blowing moments that we've had. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like, yeah, they, like just to remind people, if you, um, X Overland Network, you can see these podcasts. We video them, and um, Lindbergh is showing us these different items. The first was fish sauce. What's the next one? It looks like- Yeah, the, the next one is, uh, it, it's, it's chicken bouillon, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, those are cubes. Bullion. That's not like those are like the bullion cubes, yeah, or no, powder. Powder. It's powder. Yeah. Um. And this is kind of a thing that I use for any kind of like, like one like egg in my Buddha uh, which is the Korean Army stew. Um. It's the best way to think about it is is it's it's chicken flavored MSG, right? So it it brings a level of like complexity to something that. When you're out there, you don't want to make your complexity, right? You don't want to labor for your complexity. You right. want to like give me my complexity right now. Like the reason why we we all love ramen is because of the MSG that's in the ramen packets. No matter no ifs ands or buts, right? That's the the same reason why we love Lay's potato chips and Doritos. Same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So this does that same thing. It, it like um uh so it is, so I we put it in I put it in meatloaf. I put it into any marinades. Uh, of meat, um, any any soups, and if I just needs a little bit of something, then I just throw it in, and it's super easy. And then that goes into my third, which is what I was great MSG. Right? I did not know you could buy that just as a thing. Yeah, yeah. Tell us. So, more. This, uh, so this this comes from Japan. Um, okay. uh, it is everywhere now. But the Japanese after the war, they uh, basically the World War Two. I'm talking about. Basically, they were like, we need to somehow, we love umami. Like, Japanese, and that, the word umami is invented by the Japanese, right? And it's it's this, they call it like the sixth taste, right? It's the one that makes you go, mmm, that's really good, right? You can't describe it. It's just like a different flavor. Love that there's a word for that. And- right? So, so the Japanese invented the word umami, and they, after the war, and after things started becoming more and more industrial, and more and more, like, the people started working more, and uh, Japan be- started to become successful, and then the populace started to not have time to cook. They someone invented uh, MSG, and it's an extract from uh, what was it? Uh, like like seaweed, right? So it's an extract from seaweed. So it's all natural. It's a hundred percent natural, right? And all it is is just adds this this zing to your to your flavor. It just it's just it, if you taste it raw, it kind of tastes like a salt and a and a sugar and a little bit of something else together. Um, but it just adds like, it makes your, basically makes your mouth salivate. Right. And that's all it is. And then when you're out camping, you want food that makes you go, mm, right. Yeah. Totally. That's the whole reason. Yeah, that's the whole reason. Right. So, uh, so yeah, you put it into literally everything. Um, and it just makes things so much better. Um, and like, like I said, meatloaves, throw it in, like marinades, throw it in, whatever it is. Um, just can't even tell you how hungry I am right now. <laughs> I know. Even if you do sauces, right? Let's just say you do like you just bought a roasted uh roasted chicken from the store and you take it to camp, right? And you're like, I need some sauce with this, right? Throw on some barbecue sauce and throw a little bit of MSG and throw in some other spices into it and it's great. Right. Ooh, and just I just that's a quick I like I feel like right? I could do that one. So so like the all three of those ingredients are things that could be used over and over and over in different applications, no matter right. what. And the other thing about MSG. Um, I also throw into to, uh, homemade dressings, right? So when yeah. we're at camp, you just throw into a homemade dressing, and it just it just makes it amazing. Yeah. Mm. 
So yeah. I, I, yeah. And then I do have to say one cab is very small population in this world is actually allergic to MSG, but it's very, very, very small. I was going to bring that up because I feel like at some point in like my childhood, maybe we were learning about yes. Japan. I'm not even sure, but like MSG was a thing and there was like, oh, like I remember like you wanted to buy things that said no MSG. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm hearing now is completely the opposite of that, but yes, I, I can't remember the exact. It, it's complex. I'm not sure if I want to get into it. Yeah, in totally. Podcast, but sure. um, there is a shift in uh, the, the the narrative of MSG, um, and okay. MSG is a good thing. Um, okay. it, it makes things easier for everyone. Like, why do you not want your food to taste good? Basically, right? right? Mm. Um, and yeah, so I, I think I, I I'm, I'm pro MSG. Uh, <laughs> as you know, um, I love Doritos. I love Lay's. I love Pringles, and those all have MSG in it. Um, and so why why shouldn't we put it into our cooking that, one, we're cooking at camp. Why not make it easier? Why not make it more delicious by just throwing a dash of MSG? Yeah. Well, I like that whole principle of what you're talking about with these like key ingredients you bring along, and that you, you do sometimes find yourself in camp making do with whatever you can find in a mm-hmm. very small town. Um, or maybe leftovers. Like I love to get creative with leftovers in general. It's just something right. I like to do. And if you have a couple things, you can just throw in there, and boom! And now you now it's way tastier. Right. Uh, it's like a favorite hot sauce or something like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. And it's not all just about processed food having MSG either. It's like you know this is traditional right. food. Right. Is made with it mm-hmm. in yeah. different mm-hmm. cultures. Yeah. I mean, I mean, natural MSG you can cook out of it. Like you can create that, but it does take time and it does take skill and a lot of education to get to that point. Awesome. Yeah. So, so um, it's a good <laughs> shortcut. It sounds great. Are there any other like things you like to always have stacked, like like certain amount of rice or some kind of uh, cured meats or, you know, are there things like that that are also just good to stock up with in your galley when you can that you um, do? We do, uh, we do travel with cured meats as much as we can as well. Uh, we learned this uh, from one of our good friends, Bound for Nowhere. Uh, and they call it, or, or Mac calls it, a fancy feast, right? And we, it, 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 it becomes a thing, right? So you're, you're at camp, but you're lazy to cook. And the easiest thing to do is throw everything you can that you have into a tray and kind of like a charcuterie tray mm-hmm. and then eat it, right? And then yeah. there's no cooking. And it's it's really good, and um, yeah, it becomes a thing because we call it fancy feast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Mac. Yeah, and no dishes. Like after a long day of say hiking or whatever it may be, and you're like, I really don't want to put in the effort to cook. Like I could literally shovel just a bar right now. The yeah. fancy feast is a nice little treat. It's you're not eating granola bar for dinner. Yeah, yeah I do that with my kids right now. I do not. Be making. The DIY charcuterie board tonight. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Well, I think too, like this podcast it has really, you know, just maybe introduced you to some of our audience and introduced uh, this topic that we're getting into of great, great food, great cooking in camp and on the trail and overlanding. And there's so many, like you know, Leah, just hearing you mention your kids, right? Like, there's a whole world there we can talk about. Um, just talking about like this high energy, hearty food that came from, you know, a military origin, like thinking about adventurers who are making mountain biking camps and like, mm-hmm. what can they cook easily that's good and will fuel them. And I just see like lots of potential future episodes with you two. So, and I really enjoy talking to you. And so I'm excited to, to produce some of those in the future. Oh, we'd be excited to be part of them. Yeah. 
So for at the at the time, where can people find you guys? You can find us on Instagram at Gondurton. That's G-O-N-D-I-R-T-I-N. And our website's gondurton.com. Yep. And our website has a bunch of recipes on it already. So. Oh, sweet. So we put that in the show note links. So it's going to mm-hmm. be linked up to a whole bunch of recipes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Get like your it. heart out. Let us know if you have any questions. Yeah. If you're in the middle of a recipe and you're like, am I doing this right? Just let us know. Oh, great. People can actually reach back to you guys. Um, and you're, you, did you go to a lot of expos then? I heard you, uh, Lindbergh mentioning like demos at expos. Like, is that a place where people can sometimes find you guys? Yeah. Uh, we don't go to all the expos. Uh, I mean, this year we're only doing Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then last year we did Flagstaff. Um, but, uh, yeah, we do like one expo a year. Potentially, yeah. Most of yeah, most we've of done different events. Yeah. Toyo's had events. So we've done catering for them or a, sh- a demo of food. So people could experience, you know, something different. And um, everybody's yeah. blown away. It's just like, give me another sample, please. <laughs> so, I'm, so we're going to have to plan a trip where we can all come together and you can cook for us. I would love that. We'll I do would the dishes. I love that. Yeah. I'll so, do the dishes. Exactly. <laughs> so so this, this, this is kind of like gloating a little bit. But out of Montero, I was able to feed 25 people. Holy guacamole. Yeah. That's impressive. Wow. I, yeah. My jaws just dropped. I'm speechless <laughs> with that one. Like, I'm just envisioning, like, out of my camper outfit, like, cooking for 25 people. No, I'd be ordering pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dominic. <laughs> I need, um, that's incredible. Uh, pork katsu with cabbage and then a little thing of tofu. And it, it was great. It was so good. Love that's it. Amazing. Well, Thank you all so much for being on the episode and uh, for everybody listening, all things XRLand podcast, XRLand, go to XRLand.com. You can find the network there, all our content. It's a great place for tons of resources. Uh, We've been thrilled to have you guys on the show. Looking forward to your creator series, Gone Cooking. Can't wait to check that out. And um, until we meet up again, happy cooking happy trails have fun out there and uh i know lee and i like i'm ready for lunch and i'm gonna try to elevate the game seriously <laughs> it's my it's my challenge my personal i'm gonna go looking today. for fish sauce like see if we have some i know i have I'm some i just it. i've never thought to use it other than like a marinator like i don't know red sauce throw it in that's all you need yeah that, that, that's your gateway into fish sauce if that makes sauce. my kids eat their meal I, I owe you a lot. <laughs> I'm sending you all a picture when I do the Caesar salad in camp. Like, I, yeah, I will, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All Thanks right. Thanks again Thanks. for having us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. And we'll uh, we'll see everybody next time. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, Stay adventurous.